0: with Michael and Maurice Take it away Michael
2: All right folks, welcome back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. We have episode number 42 today. Uh there we go. we're going to be talking about DMT and dreams with Lee Adams. Um and uh check out his website taileaters.com and he's also on Facebook. He's got a group on there. I'm on it. It's pretty cool. Um, and uh yeah check us out on patreon patreon.com backslash mike and maurice and check our website out mike and maurice mind save
0: the plugs uh, for the end bro without <laughs>
2: end, we've got our buddy uh lee adams here what's going on lee hey how's it going guys glad to be back and you know, we uh, had a good conversation last time so absolutely oh yeah um So you and I were talking uh, a little back and forth on your uh, group on Facebook, and uh, we both just read that book, which is the latest from Dr. Rick Strassman, the uh, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy. Um, What was your take on that? Because it was kind of a divergent opinion of his from the initial one, which was more, I guess, geared towards appeasing academia, and this one kind of is geared towards his own personal experiences and where he would like to take it, I guess. Yeah. So
1: a little bit of a background on who uh, Dr. Strassman is he's primarily, I mean, he was raised um, Jewish. So um, that's kind of his background and, you know, like uh, your childhood belief systems and how you're raised kind of are a foundation of who you are, I think. Um, so he always kind of had that in the background, Um, but then he went and he studied Buddhism with, uh, I think Tibetan Buddhism and, um, really got into that because it provided him, you know, like in the sixties, a lot of people get driven to that once they have, you know, certain experiences and he doesn't really discuss his like personal experiences if he used any substances or anything, but he definitely had, you know, like meditation experiences and existential crises that typically people have at, you know, younger ages, um, in the sixties and stuff. So, um, you know, he went that direction. So, um, when he was writing his first book and having those experiences, um, or doing the the study, um, primarily he used, um, the Buddhist, um, and the Tibetan Buddhism ideas for grading his patients' experiences. So then he had, um. While these people were describing their experiences to him, he noticed that often they weren't having these um, these Buddhist experiences that typically come from like uh, meditation and things like that, where it's um, this idea that you become one with the universe and things like that. Typically, people were having um, dualist type of um, things happen to them. They were experiencing entities. They generally didn't become one with the universe, which is like the non-dualist view of reality where everything is one, things like that. And they weren't having that experience from DMT. Not saying that it doesn't happen. Um, Primarily, like 5-MEO DMT people describe oneness with the universe, things like that. But his patients um, that he's studying were not having those type of experiences very often. And so it kind of threw him for a loop. He was like, "What? You know, this is how I was going to grade it. It's not working. This model's not working." But then he kind of went back to his childhood um, views of religious experiences, and he remembered that through the Jewish Jewish um, um, experiences and the Hebrew writings, that people were describing something that was very closely resembling the DMT experience. So. His newest book was pretty much taking the prophecy, which a lot of people um, don't understand. Prophecy means like having a um, having an experience, a religious type of experience or a spiritual experience is a form of prophecy, not determining
2: the future, things like that, just having yeah, an experience. People think like Nostradamus kind of yeah, yeah, I realize when you just even mentioned that, I agree with you absolutely, where it's just like a mystical experience that gives you some sort of, insight or um maybe the ability to kind of like look through the veil or whatever and, and when you say that to people it's kind of like the word occult people just like flip out. oh it means demonic yeah. or evil or whatever you know so um yeah there it's 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 kind of re people on the different terminology and jargon i've realized that you know kind of gets them back into the things this
0: yeah for predict shit though
2: yeah yeah i mean he did but like uh I mean some of it doesn't hit either you know you got Baba Vanga the the old lady from Bulgaria who's predicting shit you know and some of these people are accurate but it's like is it pareidolia where you're like looking in you're looking for a pattern or you're looking for something so you're like oh this connects this connects this connects or is there something actually there you know I mean that's that's right. my, my take on it. I'm not so sold on Nostra. I'm not saying that he wasn't, you know, able to yeah, do no. things or whatever, but I'm not like sold on what he was doing, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean,
1: like, um, you're right. The, the idea of prophecy is generally, I mean, language is important in culture and using correct language is super important. And generally today we kind of just throw language around, don't really like narrow it down to actually what it means. Right. So he spends a lot of time in his book kind of working on language and because he wants to re- re-educate people on the importance of these words. So like prophecy doesn't mean like fortune telling or anything like that. It, it includes that people can prophesize the future. But um, prophecy in general is like having a um, spiritual experience that generally like is experienced from some type of like heavenly or godlike or demonic Experience something like that that gives you some type of insight, like you were talking about. So he spends a lot of time in his book talking about that. But um, the the basics of it is that the um, he says that pretty much these experiences that people had um, aren't necessarily determined by uh, hallucinogens or anything like that either. That there's not a lot of evidence to say that um, these mystical experiences in the Hebrew Bible were were brought on by using substances but he's showing the relationship and also um positive relationship and the negative relationship between the DMT experiences from his patients to the hebrew experience of prophecy
2: so that's kind of where it goes his theory though is more of like some sort of endogenous dmt dump right like maybe i was thinking about when i was reading it like you think of you know wandering the desert for 40 days, 40 nights. Well, that would put a severe strain on you, your physical body. And maybe your body went into like a, a mode where it was, you know, thought it was dying. And all of a sudden you're having these, you know, releases. I don't know. That's just what I was kind of thinking about when I was reading that. And he kind of alludes to it in certain spots too, you know,
1: I would, um, I don't necessarily say that he agrees with that either. Right. That, these experiences um, from his description and talking with him, he pretty much says that it's kind of spontaneous too, where um, certain people are kind of selected. I mean, you get into the more of the mystical way, you know, the woo woo kind of stuff in there, but you know, Dr. trustman's a pretty respectful scientist in my view, right stuff. Um, but, and he, he tends to believe, Or think that there's um, some type of divine activity taking place where, you know, in a sense, God is like selecting people to have these experiences kind of spontaneous, even if they don't want to or they're not doing something in order to cause it. But yes, there are um, religious experiences that happen through like heavy breathing, you know, chanting for long periods of time, um, fasting for long periods of time. And he doesn't deny that that's like a possibility or that does happen. It does happen. But these more like impactful, long lasting experiences that are in changing of society experiences that are described in the Hebrew Bible are generally um, brought on by um, something that's kind of random. It seems it almost seems random where it just happens um, to be that person and they're selected by God or the divine or whatever. And then, um, and then it happens to them versus like them trying to cause it to happen. Even some of, in, in some cases, people don't want these things to happen They're like choose somebody else. Like Moses who's like, choose anybody else but me. And, it, and God's like, no, you're it. That's how it's going to be.
2: So, so do you think it's like, um, like you said, you think it's, or he thinks it's random, but do you think it has some sort of to do with like, maybe like a bloodline stuff? Maybe, you know, a lot of these biblical figures, it was like a father and then the son too. And some of these people having similar experiences and then kind of like a, a carrying on of tradition, if you will. Um, Do you think it was something like that? Or do you really think it was a random thing? Like, oh, this guy's somewhat of an enlightened being, or I'm going to use this guy to do this as not like a pawn, but just kind of, you know, nudging somebody a certain direction, if you will.
1: I'd say it's too hard to tell because, um, I mean, we're looking at something that's thousands of years old. We're looking at people that, um, a book that has been edited
2: you know by yeah we don't cultures. know a lot about these people either that's right. the thing is like there's no context for besides the parables and the stories and you know, right. different stuff so like if
1: it happened today to somebody then um we could kind of figure out who that person was what they're doing and then kind of justify like oh this is probably why they had that experience you know like they're spending a lot of time fasting or they're very religious in the first place and they. They spend a lot of time praying and things like that that can alter their consciousness or their um, cultural beliefs are based off of, you know, um, they're super religious or something like that. Or maybe they're in psychosis or they're taking medication or eating certain plants, those kind of things. But back then, you know, um, there's just too much to, to weed through in order to make some type of image that's like accurate. It's just, it's completely, um, you know, ungrounded experiences. You can only take their experience. And if, if you believe that their experience is real, then you can kind of pick the experience apart to to indicate that maybe they're asleep. You know, some a lot of it's in, in people having sleep experiences. They're dreaming, you know, and probably are having what we would consider an out-of-body experience where they're in sleep paralysis kind of thing. So in, in, in that, we can... Um, apply to people today that have those experience and say, okay, those, those sounds and stuff like that are similar. Um, so obviously they're having that type of experience or something related to that. Um, but you know, it's, it's the Hebrew Bible. It's, it's super <laughs> complex and hard to even understand like the internal meaning of it. So, that, I mean, and he's spending a, he's, he oddly enough, like his entire goal now is kind of, he's kind of in like retirement mode kind of, he's not really like, into the psychedelic community or anything like that anymore um he does like help people and editing their peer-reviewed papers and stuff um that deal with dmt and like altered states but primarily he's spending his time focusing on um the Hebrew bible and like interpreting it trying to get into a way of um to the masses to try to like explain um the language inside of it so that people can actually understand that like this isn't just like um, some crazy, you know, thought process that these people are having and wrote it down in the, in the Bible. It's actually like, um, there's actually information in there that's really important to culture and um, human experience. And that's where he's trying to go with it. And it's not like some like crazy person doing this. It's like, you know, he's a legitimate person. He's grounded and he's he understands the complication that's involved <laughs> with the, um with the Bible and and he wants to make it so it's not so complicated so people can actually understand that like there's important information in it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your
2: savings are waiting. Go
0: to your happy place for a happy
2: price. Go to your happy price, price Priceline.
1: Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly, it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at microsoft.com slash AI for all.
2: Yeah, I mean, I definitely got that vibe. And actually, I watched his magical Egypt his Symposium. Um, and uh, he talked a little bit about the, the beginning, um, how people he's gone to like different places to try and talk about it like i think he just talked about a place in like california where he tried to talk about they're like you can't talk about that here it's like religion or whatever and they didn't really understand that there was like a a greater context or a greater you know it's not just about like he's just trying to give a model of a possibility of what these people were experiencing in a a real scientific eh, i guess semi-scientific way um And I think that, you know, obviously there's people that are just hearing the one thing and not really kind of picking up on the other thing, so... Yeah, um, he got kicked
1: out of uh, TED Talks because of
2: uh, of it. So he's trying to to connect DMT
0: to religion and the Hebrew Bible, or...?
1: um, More like explain the, the religious experience in the Hebrew Bible. So, like, it's really complex because... I mean, for me, I was very religious as a kid. And when I started reading his book, I found a lot of anxiety coming out. Actually, I was like kind of getting upset that I was forced to read this book. You know, I'm like forced to, but I was really wanting to read this book because I was going to talk to him. And um, it, it put me off. I was like, I don't want to read this because I had so many biases towards the Bible that I was like, I didn't want to even look at it. And but when I started reading his book, um he really goes into the words, like I was saying, like the actual information in it and the words that are involved and, um, and picks them apart and shows that like the Hebrew language is very complex and has a lot of information in each word that you can't just take on and say, Oh, that's what it means. You have to really like dig down deep into it. So like one thing that he described was this idea of God and like, in my mindset, you know, the idea of God and in a Jewish perspective or Christian perspective perspective is that he's like some old guys, you know, yeah. like in a, sitting some, in the chair in the sky. Yeah, exactly.
2: Basically Zeus is what you
1: yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Even, you know, and it's important to reference um, Greek mythology too in a second, but what he was, what they were really describing is like this thing that you can't imagine. You can't possibly really um, even relate to. It's so, powerful that it's beyond human consciousness. You can't even begin to understand it. So it's like a fourth dimensional object. You just can't describe it. It's completely out of your grasp of consciousness. It's just beyond us. So how do you how do you talk about something like that? You know, it may it may exist, but you you can't talk about it. The only way that you can talk about it is if you really dumb it down to a point where people can like relate to the object. So the Hebrews' way of relating to God is to make him into a figure of that was relatable to their culture. So they created this man, you know, God is not man man or woman to Hebrews, but they have to describe it. So they described it as a man and they described it in a way that had, you know, human like attributes to it. It got emotional and things like that. And that was the way they described it. So like Greek mythology is, also the same way it's the mythology. It doesn't mean that it's myth. Does not mean fake? It means, um, it means like it's a story that relates to humans, uh, in their culture and their consciousness. So they used myth and Zeus, you know, it's a good figure. It's a figure of, of this divine being as well, but they're, they're not describing, they don't believe that there's people in the sky you know there are zeus and all these gods and stuff like that doing this stuff like that we imagine they're like that what they're really describing is something beyond that but they're dumbing it down to the point that they can actually communicate it and you know cultures have been doing that forever like native americans have creation stories where you know like the fox and the wolf and all this stuff and you're like how can how can this culture believe that like some wolf or fox is making the universe? This is stupid, you know. Like how, yeah. how immature, or, you know, um, whatever. Stupid of them, right? But really, they they know that they know that that's not the fox didn't make the universe, but they're dumbing it down so that they can relate to their culture and they can talk about it and have stories. So that's the mythology behind it. So the Hebrews Bible has a lot of mythology in it doesn't mean it's fake myth doesn't mean fake people again use that word to to discredit things
2: that was Mrs. like Earth early Florida. science was like what you're right. kind of what you're talking about like it's just a way like how we can describe things by measuring and you know redoing different tests and different things exactly. to explain yeah. something that was just their way of back then of doing that actually i mean if you think about it science is actually still kind of a new mythology uh, yeah exactly yeah, it doesn't mean it's fake, just you're describing something in a
1: way, in a story format. So, like, um, science is, like, um, something I've been getting into is this idea of, like, polytheism and mon- monotheism, and polytheism is, like, storytelling. It's a way of thinking of the world as in these um, stories that change, and it, it um, evolves over time, and, you know, characters are um, described as, they're describing things of the psyche and things like that that aren't, Uh, necessarily like super hard forms you know there's there's different aspects of right and wrong and things like that and it changes and it's morphed and then there's monotheism which is absolutes rights and wrongs so science generally is a monotheistic view of reality where something is true and then there's something that's false and christianity is actually more of a monotheistic view on religious experience where um, there's there's god and then there's satan and then there's heaven and there's hell and there's right and there's wrong and, and things like that and both are actually like um the more you understand the polytheism and the monotheism there's no one way to look at reality both of them are actually just as important to understand it together um it's like the creative aspect to the more logical aspect to those are monotheistic and polytheistic and using those together to create your actual form of reality is what um is true potential of human existence, like understanding of reality you can't if you exclude one from the other then you're you're missing half the picture so um yeah, so one is that they're both equally as important, but at the same time um they're equally unimportant so do you
0: do you, think, sense. do you think some of these older cultures are uh were smarter in the sense that they combine science and art kind of in oh, the same Absolutely.
2: Thing. Well, yeah, that wasn't absolutely. that long ago though. I mean, we're talking for that stuff was like, you know, 14, 15, 16, 1700s. Um, you know, if we think about mythology, I mean, that goes back to BC thousands of years and actually we we're just talking about monotheism, polytheism. I mean, Akhenaten was the first was father of monotheism, the first recorded person to say, "No, no, no. There's one god." Um, you know, and that's dynastic Egypt. So, um, you know, I don't think, I think what you're talking about, is kind of like the scientific revolution where everything was kind of married together, music, art, science, you know, it was kind of like an all encompassing thing. You see your Renaissance men, your Da Vinci's and you know, all that kind of stuff too. Bless you. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, let's correlate this now to dreams because part of that book does talk about how he believes that a lot of these prophets were actually sleeping during during some of these experiences. So what was your take on that? Was that they're having lucid dreams maybe and that was what was actually happening or were they stuck, kind of what you were saying, they were picked and having this experience but while they were sleeping or what was your Um, Well, before
1: even reading that in his book um, there's a a great article out there. I forget the name of it, but I can send it to you. I think it's called like, um, um I don't, I, I can't remember the name of it, but anyways, I'll describe it. So um, it's this article that talks about the dream experience and then it relates it to um, the prophecy experience pretty much. And they're talking about certain sounds and sensations that people have during their dream experiences that relate to the hebrew bible again and and other um prophes prophetic type of experience and you know like ringing of um bells you know like angels usually come after ringing of bells or the
2: sound of trumpets or singing or let me actually let me stop you right there I've done an, I, we've, uh, we've interviewed a lot of people now that have like the one guy that we interviewed Dick Kahn who wrote a book about, you know, he's done it 600 times in the last few years. He talks about this ringing. You can feel or hear this ringing yeah. when you're about to go under, do you correlate those two things together? Like kind of what you're saying, these bells or these trumpets yeah. is that, is that that sensation that I've never done it, but I've interviewed enough people to know that that's a commonality when people describe the experience.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we may describe them as different today, too. So, like, um, often people hear um, radio. It sounds like radio chatter, kind of. And um, so people today may describe that as, you know, uh, radio. But then you take it back a couple thousand years where radio didn't exist. And people may think that that sounds like um, ringing of bells or angels speaking, you know. So you have to really understand that, like, this is a different time, and these people saw reality as completely different than we do today, and their relationship to those experiences are going to be different in their descriptions. So, um, but yes, like the often people that if you read about sleep paralysis and their experiences in sleep paralysis, they they often describe sounds very closely resembling prophetic states. Like a hundred percent, even you know they're not intending to have these sounds happen to them, and they may be religious, they may not be religious, but they it's common throughout like all cultures that they have these sounds. Definitely like uh, trains, sounds sounds like a train's coming, you know, very loud, uh, vibrational experiences that can be auditory or felt. Um, uh, breath, the the blowing of wind is often describes God. And him communicating to people and um, definitely there's there's an astral wind that people experience and um, out-of-body experiences as well as like um, hearing wind blowing in their ears. My first sleep paralysis was um, experienced with somebody blowing in directly into my ear. It felt like mm-hmm. somebody was blowing. So I, I, I thought it was my buddy. Blowing into my ear, and it was just <laughs> really pissing me
2: off. I, probably I better I probably it better but, wasn't him blowing. Yeah. It. <laughs> he was gonna get well, I was, was going to
0: say, man, you're describing my Saturday night with my girlfriend.
2: Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I lived in a, um, a house that I had a couple of roommates um, that were staying with me, and one of them was definitely a joker. You know, <laughs> the kind of guy that would jump on you in the middle of the night and start hitting you or something. Or So I assumed that it was him. And um, he would have a bloody nose today, you know, at that time, if, <laughs> if it was him, cause I swung around to hit him cause I was so upset and it's pretty annoying, you know, somebody blowing in your ear and you can't move. I thought he was like, just had me in a headlock. And, uh, and then, you know, and then I had, uh, I woke up when I moved and there was nobody in my room. So, uh, that was sleep paralysis and, if you read like Robert Monroe's, um book uh, journeys out of the body, he actually describes um, being able to go in and out of his body at this point where he hears um, wind blowing in his ear. He thinks he feels like somebody's blowing into his ear, just like I did. And I read this years later, like I read this, read this last year, I had sleep paralysis in like 2006. And, uh, and he said he, he was, it frightened him, this thing blowing in his ear. And, Um, he was able to move out of his body into out of body state, why this was happening and he'd blow. And then he would feel it, the sensation of air blowing into his ear as he was blowing in his astral body. And so like he, through this, doing this multiple times, he found out that it was actually him blowing into his own ear, like in a weird state, you know, his consciousness is divided in between two states of consciousness and ass. yeah. And I was like, he was like, I was scaring myself, you know? And I was like, maybe I was doing that too, you know? And I just, I assumed that it was somebody else in my room, you know, but very, you know, thinking about it, I'm like, yeah, that's, that was probably me. So yeah, that's
0: crazy. Have you seen that new show? It's called like haunting on in Hill house. It's on oh, yeah, like, Netflix. Yeah. 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 Uh, Cause the, have you seen all that? Yes. Yeah. Cause there's it's like, pretty good. A, isn't that, isn't that kind of what happens to that girl? I don't want to spoil it for Maisie.
1: They had fucking
0: weird. They definitely had sleep
1: paralysis.
0: (laughs) It was definitely sleep
1: paralysis.
2: Yeah,
0: spoil it up, man. I spoil.
2: But yeah, we talked about sleep paralysis last time, and I remember you had some kind of uh, scary experiences with it until you kind of confronted it. Um, Yeah. But this is this seems to be a little different in the sense that almost like. The one thing is fear-based, although you can control it if you realize it. It sounds like um, where the DMT thing kind of just takes you over and kind of just flushes over you. From what I've read, it's it's almost like you don't really have control of what's going on at all. Yeah, like if you take DMT, definitely. But if you're
1: um, if you're having a sleep experience and say, let's just say that DMT is the cause of your Mystical experiences in sleep, too.
2: You know, I'm not saying it's t- well, We had a discussion about that, too. You thought it might be yeah. this other thing, too, kappa opioid, which yeah. is the salvia, uh, derivative. Yeah. Well, I mean,
1: you know, it could be that, too. It doesn't really matter because the, the, if you call it DMT or call it salvia, you know, or um, the uh, yeah. you know, receptors in the brain, you know, activating, then, uh, you know, regardless of whatever it is, the experience is happening. So then you're like, okay, well, what is that, you know, that experience. Um, so like for somebody that resists sleep paralysis, you know, they, um, they are fear driven type people or something like that. And they have this experience and it's fearful. Um, they may, um, resist it and then have traumatic experiences in there, like extreme vibrations or hallucinatory experiences that, um, are traumatic and, um, weird as hell and just freak them out. Right. Cause it's completely fear driven at that point. Well, if you have somebody that isn't driven by fear, um, you know, maybe thousands of years ago, even people probably weren't, um, you know, they, they, um, they slept outside and things like that and uh, maybe they were less fear driven or maybe they're very religious or something like that and firm in their beliefs and stuff like that. Who knows? Um, but maybe they're more open to these experiences of nature to and they have sleep paralysis well it may not be as traumatizing to them they may just accept it happening and then move on you know they may be more willing to move on so then it would just take them over and they would have that experience versus like a resistance and a traumatizing vibrational experience that generally people talk about today when they have sleep paralysis so you know and and if you take dmt from what strassman was talking about um it into you then it takes over you you're you have no choice really in in the matter but people did describe some of them did describe like violent vibrations and stuff like that as well um is that
2: the most sport. potent form to take it or was because for me from what i've watched it looks like people that smoke 5 meo kind of go into a way more nuts than yeah. I've seen other people doing different stuff like ayahuasca or, I mean, they don't really show you injecting it necessarily in the spirit molecule, So it's hard to see how these people yeah. are actually reacting, but, uh, um, well, they, he had experienced,
1: um, uh, people that had used DMT before and they smoked it in yeah. his group. And so he used one of those people as like a model for, um, trying the injection, um, and they, they responded saying that that was the most accurate to smoking it and they couldn't smoke it because of obvious reasons to that. So that's why they went with the injection It's safer and it's, it's more controllable. Right. So, um, but it, they said that that was comparable. I've never smoked D or injected into me, so I don't know what that would be like. Right. So.
0: Well, it seems like any drug, it gets into your blood faster if you smoke crack or if you shoot yeah. or smoke heroin.
1: <laughs> yeah, Ding. definitely. Two great examples right there. You okay. inject it into your muscles, you know, with IV <laughs> and stuff. You probably have similar experiences. It's probably very quickly into your brain where it needs to get going and know some stuff. So,
2: <laughs> do you think? Um, I know we've gone back and forth about this, but do you think that DMT, like based on any recent research, because I know when we talked a couple months ago, you were pretty on the path of finding out for yourself or your own truth that DMT is not as responsible for a lot of these dream states, lucid dreams, that kind of stuff. And it's more like you said, kappa opioid or some other sort of neuron thing that's happening or possibly some other sort of chemical endogenous chemical that's being released in our brain or.
1: Yeah. I mean, I sent you that video and uh, I'll just um, it's pretty technical. So I didn't understand everything in there, but I, you could get the gist of it pretty much in the conclusion. Right. And the conclusion was that um, if there is, it's pretty much saying that the pineal gland DMT theory is, is not possible pretty much based on like logical reasoning, right. there's just not enough produced in the pineal gland to cause people to have mystical experiences. It's just, even if, um, you know, even they've only found it in rat brains because you, obviously it's harder to do studies on human brains.
2: Um, well, you have to but, tap into an alive person, which right. I mean, who's going to allow that, you know? Yeah. And, um, but it is produced in our liver and our lungs, isn't it? Right.
1: So, I mean, it, is produced in other areas of the brain or body. Um, And, you know, you you may produce enough if you were breathing heavily and things like that to cause an experience. But, I mean, you you can have runners high and things like that. You can run hard and breathe heavily and still not have, like, psychedelic experiences from that. So it was... um, The conclusion was pretty much that there's just not enough, really, in the human system, like, at sleep time to justify it being the, the molecule that's causing people to have mystical experiences in sleep or dreams. So if there was an alternative to that, then that was, you know, the simplest answer is probably the, the right one and uh, alchems razor or whatever, right? And yeah. this guy was justifying that there is a chemical that is um, active in the brain. It's very reasonable that this is what's causing it. Um, other psychedelics that resemble that um, chemical, such as salvia, ibogaine, um, and ketamine, all have the same type of experience that are directly um, correspond to out of body experiences. So, yeah, dissociative psychedelics, right. right? Yeah, yeah. So they they mimic um, having an out of body experience, and they often cause out of body experiences exactly how an out of body experience is. And, you know, you look at that and you look at the evidence that it's in the body it reacts to the brain very well, just like DMT does. Um, It's most likely going to be that. So pretty much that, I mean, I was on the DMT train for a long time, you know, probably like nine years or something like that. Right. Articles about it saying, oh, you know, these chemical processes, you know, they could possibly get to that point and follow Strassman's work very closely. But after a lot of review, you know, I'm like, yeah, it's okay. This, this totally makes sense. So you kind of go, you gotta go, you can't be stuck on a, on a train going the wrong direction. You gotta eventually get off and be like, okay, yeah. Um, maybe this other one is right.
2: Let me ask you a question though. Um, so you say there's not enough based on what they can detect or whatever do you think it's possible our body can synthesize it in mass amounts at some point, given some sort of on off switch or, you know, like, I mean, our brain's super powerful. Um, We obviously release different things in our bodies at different times, whether you're sick and your cells, you know, change or whatever, to go combat the uh, disease, something like that. Do you think that's a possibility for, Something like that. I'm not a biologist, obviously. I don't know the chemical process or you know makeup of that. But do you think it's possible to create that? If in certain instances, or no, is that not what's happening? Gosh, anything's possible, really. I think
1: um, you know you can. You may be able to dis- disassociate yourself just from uh, an idea or a memory too. You don't necessarily have to take a drug, or there there may be no chemical reasoning to it. You're just having just have a memory, and that is enough to cause you to have a psychotic break. You know, Um, it doesn't have to necessarily be a chemical reason behind it. I mean, your brain is chemical, electrical, but so some chemicals are interacting there. But it's not the you know you can't you don't have to blame the chemical for the psychosis. Um, But the I think it's unlikely that um, DMT is the one causing that. But sure, you know you can you could do that, but um, it's more likely that it's a it's some other type of interaction taking place that's causing people to dream and
2: stuff. So that's the distinguishment between dreaming and kind of what's going on in this book, DMT and the Soul Prophecy, is the fact that, like you said before, these people are getting picked for these experiences. Whether they're in a dream state or about to dream or wide awake, it doesn't matter. It's still the same experiencing ha- experience happening um, to that person. Is that kind of what his his philosophy then was towards that? Knowing what we know and what we just talked about,
1: it was it was really hard to figure out like what his whole per like his whole view was through the book, and also after talking to him, um, I didn't get any clear answers to this. You know him hypothesizing that DMT is causing mystical states that was not the hypothesis in his book and he never even mentioned anything close to that when we were talking Um, it was pretty much that he was relating the DMT experience to this prophetic state and showing the similarities of that experience and then that's it he wasn't saying like um, prophecy is caused by DMT or DMT produces prophecies. he's just saying that they they resemble each other and i even like um tried to see what his view was of the dmt state was it equivalent equivalent to the prophetic state like is there something to be gained from this experience at all you know and he completely um went away from that he was like i i got the gist that he didn't think that the dmt experience was a prophetic prophetic um Prophetic state or experience. Right. And so what I got from all that is that he was just relating the two together and he saw some similarities and he was describing those similarities. But there wasn't like any giant, giant realization through that.
0: Do You think he doesn't want to say that stuff because he doesn't want to be fucking skewered by people?
1: Um, no, because he's been skewered multiple times. So the the Buddhist community. Um his his community that he spent many, many years on uh working with ostracized them when he started doing the uh DMT experiments and releasing paperwork papers describing these experiences and um and then, you know, TED talks and stuff you like that. I think the Buddhists would be more I know, man, they're practicing what they preach. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Well they primarily they uh They're saying um, they don't, I mean, like most religious communities don't want people to to take a substance and then have an experience because they kind of want to hold on to the it's looked down upon because they think it's cheating for one, you know, and they want to, they generally want to hoard the knowledge, you know, it's a, it's kind of ego, you know, you're, you're like, I'm control. You come to me and I teach you, you know, that's how it works. So if, if you have somebody that can go take a, a pill or something like that and have some type of mystical experience that changes them so dramatically that they just, you know um, they want to tell everyone about it and they, they feel they have had a religious experience. Then that kind of takes the power away from that. And also it's important to, um, to have guidance, you know, and groundedness when you have experiences like that, because it can, it can turn you into the next uh, Manson, you know, where you're, you think that helter skelter is going to happen and you go murder people um, because you you think you're the next prophet or something like that or Jesus. So it's like, um, you know, that's important too. So I think there's fear of the loss of control of information and, and control over people and also the fear of the loss of control over the experience and having people just run around crazy and in psychosis or whatever, thinking they're Jesus. And um, so that that's scary. But, I mean, a lot of these cultures and religious um, groups have used psychedelics in the past, and they wrote about them. Um, there's historical evidence that um, Buddhists were using mushrooms, and um, they'll deny it to the end. But there's people that have written about it. There's people that have talked about it. Um, there's evidence. I mean, they, there's Buddhists that have, at the time period, wrote about them using mushrooms. You know, Hindus use um Soma, yeah. yeah, Soma, and...
2: Um, There's a famous you know. story where Terrence McKenna gives a Tibetan Buddhist, like, some DMT or something, and the, and the guy...
0: And a black into,
2: poster. This guy goes into a world and comes back and is like, that's the farthest you can go, you know, into the death realm and still come back, you know? Wow. So, like, obviously, I think if you, give, if you gave that to somebody that was an enlightened being, they would have some sort of insight on it that you might not get from a normal person doing it because they've kind of achieved that state without it, you know? So, right. Yeah.
1: I mean, yeah, that, well, there's a lot to be learned from the work, the good work, right. Of going into that state through practice, you know, there's, there's something to be said about that. So if you sit there and you meditate every day for the next 30 years and eventually you get to the point where you can have that experience, there's there's a lot of learning and life lesson that's involved in that versus somebody that just goes there. You know, the journey is actually the experience, not the the end result. So um, that's where the the teaching comes from, I think, not the the actual experience of, at the end. So um, so that's important, you know, to remember. Um, I was going to say too that um, it's odd that. Middle Easterns use Syrian Rue as a sacrament to like bless people and stuff. And Syrian Rue by itself, I believe, is um, partially has some DMT in it, and has, and, and as a strong MOI. Oh, so wow. you would imagine that somebody's probably stuck that in their mouth, you know, <laughs> over thousands of years and had some type of experience in there. And why this, you know, why this herb or, or seed um, is used as a blessing, you know. And it's odd that the the Catholics kind of, um, they bless people with, you know, um, burning incenses and stuff like that too. Right. Like, why are you burning it? You know, why, are you why are you blowing the smoke all over people? You know, what does that have to do? So, you know, it, it's just, um, people forgetting about where they kind of come from, you know, with those things. Yeah. So
2: well, I know uh, Hamilton Morris was on Joe Rogan a few months ago. And because Joe Rogan was like, what about Moses and the burning bush? Could the burning yeah. bush be an acacia bush that caused him to hallucinate? And uh, Hamilton Morris said, there's no way because you would just need so yeah, much of that. Habit. Yeah. To, to kind of kick that experience into gear. You know, it's not, you know, obviously the extract will do that to you. But when you start dealing with like, you know, it would be probably like, taking a dab versus taking a hit of some shitty weed, yeah. you know, like there's a whole world of difference there. So um I concentrate. Yeah. I think I think people
1: look at that as too um they take that story and they use it too literally Too, I mean, right. who's to say that Moses wasn't um making the plant into a drink of some kind and sure. it it yeah. spoke to him and he called it the burning bush because he saw fire you know or something like that in his um an experience and so he just called it the burning bush and it kept talking to him over time you know right but really he's, he describes a brew versus an actual bush that he found out you know in the desert someplace on fire you know That's so a I mean, point yeah people just take this stuff way too uh literally and they don't you know understand i mean it's impossible to but Use You know, people need to use a little bit of creativity. And well, I know uh, <laughs> the acacia out, in, the,
2: in the Middle East, uh, there's, like, some bushes that have up to, like, 2%, which is actually, like, a high percentage. Um, and I know, actually, the Egyptians, if you look at a lot of their stuff, a lot of their stuff's acacia-based. And you go anywhere in Egypt, it's acacia trees, acacia bushes, you know, all that kind of stuff. So um, I know they were more focused on, like, the blue lotus and that kind of stuff. But yeah. uh, who's to say? I mean... There's only a certain amount of glyphs; they can't write everything down. So, yeah, definitely. Um, but uh, yeah, what as far as your research with uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this because this is hits home with me, uh, like using some of this stuff to um, heal. You know, I know you've had your experiences with the stuff. I've had my, you know, I have OCD or had OCD. I guess I still have it, but it's not necessarily <laughs> an active, you know. Yeah. Thing right now, but um, I think for me, I had a realization that OCD is all about control. Mm-hmm. Once you have one of these experiences, you lose that control. So it's like almost like a, a a thing. It's showing you, hey, you can lose control of the situation, and everything will still end up all right. And it might even give you some insight while that's happening on why that's the case. You know, yeah, yeah it's, the,
0: it's the Winnie the Pooh shit. You know, just let it happen. <laughs> I don't get right that man. reference,
1: but yeah, man. What well, do you Winnie mean by like Winnie the Pooh? Yeah, go if
0: ahead. You, if you watch the show Winnie the Pooh, they wrote a book, The Tao of Pooh, and yeah. it like relates uh, Taoism to Winnie the Pooh. Oh. But oh, okay. es- essentially, it's just he would wander out into the fog and, you know, he'd find his way home. Whatever problem uh-huh. he entered, he just wouldn't worry, and eventually, he would end up all right. And he's surrounded by, you know, like the owl who's super smart and overthinks things, or rabbit who. You know, works himself too hard. They always seem to have more issues than Winnie. Who, oh, you know, yeah. He
1: just
2: goes with it. it. Exactly. What's, so. what's, there's an Eeyore book, too. What's that one called? The Depression's uh, Awesome. <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like the the Taupoo and the something of Eeyore. I forget. But yeah,
0: yeah. yeah it was the, the follow up to the book. But yeah, we always call people that are depressed Eeyores. Yeah. It's a, it's I've a I've been called
2: that, Eeyore many times. That name Eeyore just fits
0: the fucking, fits the mold, man.
2: Yeah. But yeah. I, I, th- I think. I, I do think that there is something too that the loss of control of the situation oh, yeah. and then being forced to experience something that you don't want to face could be way more therapeutically cleansing than let's say going to twenty sessions with a doctor or whatever you know. Or yeah. I've been through CBD therapy and I've taken all the pills. None of that shit helped me personally. Right. Know it helps a, a lot, lot of people if you know if you're taking something that helps you stick with it. But there is alternatives out there for people that feel like nothing's happening and they're doing what they're told, you know? So.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I think, um, psychedelics are doing a lot of things, which makes sense because they are. Um, and generally I think, um, the overall way of describing it is that it's a communication error in the brain where it's allowing the brain to communicate to itself, say the left and the right hemisphere is better. Um, Maybe something to do with like the corpus callosum. I can never say that right, but the you know the, uh, building better communication in in between the hemispheres is definitely like something that's important there. So then you can become for people that generally use psychedelics, come up with some you know ideas from that. They're like, wow, I never really thought of it that way, or or I I've often found myself when I have um, psychedelics or something I. I think of something in a way that made makes sense to me, but, and I th- may have thought of it before, but for some reason it, I never really thought of it the same way, you know, like it's not something new that's generated. Usually it's just like, um, for some reason now I'm seeing something that was in front of me and, and it's I'm like seeing, a clearer
2: like, thought without all yeah. the bullshit in the background. Kind I'm
1: of. like, wow, like, yeah, you know, I can't believe I didn't think of that before, you know, and it seems so amazing to me, but at the same time, I'm like, yeah, it was there the whole time. But, um, So that that is happening. But at the same time, I think you're on to something profound. And I don't think it's just a psychedelic experience that causes those. I think um, I've been reading a lot of Joseph Calloway or Joseph Campbell, sorry, um, Hero's Journey stuff and really researching that and writing about it in dreams and my dream work. And I've related my dream experiences into and also psychedelic experiences into this Hero's Journey journey that's taking place in my life. And it actually mimics it like exactly in, in the description. And what I think that journey is for each person is actually a realization of the loss of control. Um, we generally want to control everything. So like even lucid dreaming, like, um, I used to be a huge supporter of lucid dreaming and trying to control your dreams and do things in them. What I've realized is that um that is also an egotistical driven desire to control all aspects of your life, even the most creative aspect possible, which is dreaming. So we want to dive in there and we wanna create our own world and like our own experiences from it and be like, I'm I'm in control, I'm going to do this, and I'm gonna um have all my, you know, desires met. Well, that's the opposite of what should be happening in the dream state. And eventually um, what I've found is dream characters start coming out of the woodwork and start trying to fight back. And that's when things start getting dark and negative and people start having nightmares and um, sleep paralysis too comes from the aspect of control and trying to control the experience. So, um, but what happens is that once you realize that you can't control everything, you allow things to happen you eventually start facing your shadow, and you start um, realizing the shadow is um, the part of you that is that wants to have control. And once you can integrate with that shadow um, aspect of yourself, you realize that control of life, death, um, happiness, sadness, things like that is just it's just getting in the way of your real progress and that once you release control over these aspects then you can you can move on with your journey and i think of a lot of psychological issues come out of this idea that you can control everything i mean like uh, buddhism you know and meditation practices is all about letting go and and just letting your mind wander and and seeing thoughts as stories and just letting them process and, and flow out of you so you can eventually realize that all thoughts are just stories and they're not they don't mean that much. You know, what really is meaningful is, is your experience through life and um, flowing with life. You know, that's where the flow of life is where people are the most happy or most content, not even happy. Happiness is a control aspect to trying to always be happy and satisfied with or not satisfied, but always be happy. Right. That's impossible. We all know that. So if you're flowing through life, then you're satisfied. You're not happy. You're not sad. You're just satisfied. You're content with things. And that's what the journey I think is all about living your life in, in contentment and satisfied, sati- being satisfied with what you have and doesn't necessarily mean you don't want more or you strive to do more or whatever. But once you get to that point where you realize that more doesn't mean better then you're then you kind of, it kind of changes the definition of what more is, you know? what's more money, what's more happiness? Right. What does that mean? So you, if you're going with the flow of life, you're kind of going with what is, um, meant to, kind of meant to be, I don't really pre- believe in predetermination or anything like that, but it seems kind of the apply to that, you know, like when right. things start going the way they're supposed to go, those are words of using predetermination and just, it works out depression, things like that kind of go away. Um, for your question of like how psychedelics help me with mental illness, things like that. I was chronically depressed for the majority of my life still. So um, my depression, I'd say went away probably when I was 24, 25. And up to that point, like I would contemplate committing suicide many times and just be utterly depressed and destroyed. And that could come from many things in my family experiences with my dad and uh, interactions with him and you know, my family or whatever. But Um, what I, when I started taking psychedelics, I definitely had a death experience where I thought I killed myself through DMT and that was definitely a loss of control and scared me at the same time. It taught me a lesson of, um, of releasing control, right? You can't have control over death. It's just something that's going to happen and take place. And, um, a lot of existential work has to do with, um, the, um, acceptance of death. So anxiety, there's a belief that all anxiety is caused from the fear of death. And, um, and I tend to think that is true. So people that are anxious all the time and stuff like that, it really, if you really get down into it, it's because they're going to die someday and they're, they don't feel like they're doing enough or they're doing what they should be doing or that all their work's going to go away that's what it, mine
2: was my OCD was based on hypochondria, fear of germs, fear of disease, fear of death, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, so you're absolutely right there. I mean, I had to confront that. And then that was a huge, on top of doing other things like changing diet, meditation, yeah. uh, just trying to be a more positive person, because when you're in that mind state, you're in a very poor me, how come this is happening to me, yeah. what did I do to deserve this, you well, don't know yeah. how to get out of that either, <laughs> yeah, well, when you're in it, buddy, you come back to me with that joke, and I'll fucking what
0: the fuck it <laughs> bro, you don't think uh, I've been through some
2: shit? I'm just saying, though, when you're really in the, the the deepest depths of fucking Mordor, dude, that, that's not yeah. a joke. it's the Mordor, bro. Uh, Um, but, uh, no, but just my point was that once I was able to confront that on top of doing other things and quitting, taking these medicines and CBT, not that those are, like I said, those are great. Those help some people, but they weren't helping me and I knew it and it had been a long time. So I needed to try something new. Um, but then I had a realization. I'm like, and I saw a quote somewhere. I forget the exact quote and who said it. I'm sure you can look it up somebody, but, um, it was like, once you realize you're not in control of your life, you can really start living. And that really hit home with me. It's like, I'm not living. I'm just trying to control every aspect of every day, you know, and you just can't do that. It's at some point, it's going to wear you the fuck down and you're going to either have a mental collapse and have to go to the hospital or worse, you know, like you say, contemplated suicide, which is a horrible thing, you know? So, um, but, yeah, the fear of death thing, I think that's huge. And everybody is scared of death, whether you want to admit it or not. You know, you can confront it and come to grips with it, but everybody's scared to die.
1: Yeah, I mean, I i would say that I'm still scared of death in some ways. You yeah. Know? But at the same time, I've gone through all these experiences, um, especially out-of-body experiences have helped me maybe more even than DMT or um, other psychedelics because every single time it feels like a dying experience almost. But after having like 30 or 40, 40 of them, you, you get used to it. You know, you're like, huh, whatever, no big deal. So then the anxiety of that experience starts going away and then things start going better. And you're like, Oh, well, if I don't, you know, if I don't um, sit there and try to resist this, this experience, then, then things flow better and life becomes positive or the experience itself becomes positive. If you take that same idea into waking reality, then if you no longer resist this, you know, experience that's going to take place one day of dying or death, then you can just, um, you can relax and allow life to happen instead of focusing on this end end game. And, and then you can enjoy life the way it's meant to be as a journey, you know, and it, it, so it it translates 100% one way and the other. So great lessons. Psychedelic experience, same thing.
0: I wanted to give a shout out to Cosmo um, on our YouTube page. They're asking, "Have you do you know who Tom Campbell is?"
1: Um, Tom Campbell, yeah, yeah.
0: So you are familiar with his work? Yes, yeah. Okay, big
1: cool. toe guy, right?
2: Yeah, I'm my not... big toe. Yeah,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> That's the name of his book, "My Big Toe." Yeah. I'm not um, a huge yeah, fan. We didn't. We did an episode on him. Um, <laughs> I like a lot of his ideas. Like we're all being funneled in through entropy towards this one big consciousness of love. I mean, that's a great idea. Um, And I think, you know, he kind of understands obviously meditation and and out of body experiences and stuff like that. Um, For me, and I, you and I have talked about this Lee, if you're really going to come up with a theory of everything and it's a working theory, which he does call his and he is open to changes and suggestions and stuff like that. Um, I don't think you can be as definitive on certain things, knowing what we know about what we know, you know, like yeah. the the nature of reality. Um, I think that there's so many, so many different things happening all the time and, and improvements, you know, and I read his book. Uh, there's three books actually, um, And uh, they're, they're great books. You know, I just think that when you don't try psychedelics and you poo poo them as not being a necessary or at least an interesting aspect to the whole movement of this whole thing. Um, And I get it. He wants to be based in scientific, you know, evidence and based in data and stuff like that. And he's a scientist and that's great. But I think once you start diminishing other aspects that are so profound, that, people are having religious spiritual you know whatever experiences you would be nuts not to at least look at that and entertain that as an idea
1: yeah what about hawking sorry didn't mean to interrupt you i think all science is based off of a a monotheistic view of reality man you know like if you're a hardcore scientist then um that's the kind of way that you're going to present yourself is that there's a there's a real thing and then there's a non-real thing, you know, where there's truth and then there's false. And that's just how it is. Like that's how your brain works. It's pure logic, you know? Um, that's great. You know, that, that feels half of the, the brain, the other, or consciousness, the other half is the polytheistic view of reality and gray different. matter figuratively yeah. and literally there's, there's more <laughs> to it than just the other one half. So like, I mean, I applaud people that are like that. And I, I'm generally in my, in the past, very, I try to be more scientific than creative or, you know, more there's a truth and there's a false. But at the same time, what I've realized through all that is that, um, that it got me nowhere that great, you know, like uh, I have some ideas of like what, what's happening, things like that. But really like I'm spending all this energy and time and everyone else is spending all their energy trying to prove or disprove an experience when the experience exists, you know, and if the experience exists, why not spend 90% of your time having the experience for yourself? This journey that is presented to you in front of you, this amazing, you know, opportunity to practice, um, you know, contentment and and having these amazing uh, out-of-body experiences And not forcing, you know, the experience or anything like that, but just being open to it and and continuing forward forward versus like spending 90% of your time, um, focusing on if, if this is real, if it's not real, I know the truth, you don't know, you know, that kind of stuff. It's just, there's just inflaming the ego even more. So it's like spend 10% doing that, you know, (laughs) or, or even less if possible, but you know, Sure, spend some time doing that, but the other, you know, percentage, or even do 50-50, right? We're talking about monotheism and polytheism. Do 50-50. Spend 50% of your time trying to prove or disprove, and 50% of your time just having the experience and, and having it for what it is, you know? So right. it seems like scientists like him are, that's his whole thing, you know?
2: It's, it's well, 100%. I, 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 I liked, I went in, look, I, one of our other buddies, Andrew Tischler comes on here, told me about him and I looked into his stuff, watched all the YouTube videos. I started reading his books. It's great stuff. I'm not disputing that it's a possibility or that it's, you know, a chance, there's a chance that this is correct. But like I said, I think any smart person, their, their intelligence is gauged by how malleable they are to new data and observations and stuff like that. And if you're not including everything into that mix, I don't know how that can be considered a theory of everything. Cause you're not taking into account, you know, whatever you want right. to call plant medicine, entheogens, well, whatever, you know, let's, let's say
1: he's right. Say everything he says is hundred percent correct. Right. And, and we're all like, good. All right. What, what does that do? What does that do for anybody? Right like we're, we're still going to die you know we're still having these experiences okay now we know now we know some facts about the experience
2: it's like what yeah. what does that do for you it doesn't yeah. do shit
0: that's like it the just, stephen hawking shit it's like sweet man You didn't the fuck off for me <laughs>
2: well it's like i i didn't like how that after he d- died it's like new book says there's no life after death or whatever it's yeah, like but, well yeah, that's just loses. because he was dying you know like he was scared he probably you know since you're a scientist, you're a reductionist, and the lights are about to go out, you know, like that would be my take from that, you know. But we, need, I think we do need people like Tom Campbell because he does bring people into this element that wouldn't normally be there. Like,
0: yeah, we need a bridge between the fucking Exactly. Exactly.
2: And, and even if he's not correct or whatever, he's half correct or, you know, whatever, he's open to ideas. Like, he talks about like spirits and UFOs and like how. They could just be a, a phenomenon, you know, that we're not understanding, which is a lot of what we think too. You know, I think. Like we were talking about dimensions earlier, we're in the third dimension. I know a lot of theoretical physicists think it ends there and just add time as the fourth dimension and then that's the theory of everything, you know, but we're learning that now that's not the case and that's wrong and they're scrambling to figure out what the fuck is really going on and that's why you see all the psychedelic research and all the stuff happening because we really still don't know what's going on, you know, we don't even know what consciousness is, you know, so... Well, I'm open for change,
1: and so I'm going to change my stance on 90-10, and I'm going to say 50-50. I like that. Spend 50% of your time researching what is real and what's not real. You know, there's your groundedness, and then 50% of your time living your experience, your journey through life, and just going with the flow and doing a practice of some kind. You know, meditate, whatever. i say it's a good mix, for sure. And that fits in the the model, model, monotheistic, polytheistic, 50-50, you know? That's yeah. where I think I think that's the sweet spot.
2: I'll go with that until I'm proved wrong.
0: That's <laughs> the honey hole.
2: Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's actually wrap it up here. Right, Thank man. you for coming on. Like I yeah. said, check out yeah. uh, Lee's website taileaters dot com and check out his podcast on YouTube called Cosmic Echo. Uh, he's got some great people on there. You know, he's gonna. I don't have you put up Rick Strassman yet. No, it'll, it'll be out in uh, probably a couple of weeks. And he did uh, Dennis McKenna uh, about a month ago. That's on there. That's a great interview. I suggest watching that. Um, And yeah, Tail Eaters is kind of like a website. It's like an Irwids for the soul kind of. You got all (laughs) body experiences. You got psychedelic research. You got all sorts of stuff on there. Um, Sweet. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, we'll have you on again. I want to get you on here with our other buddy, Chris Emerson, and sure, talk yeah. about some some lucid dreaming. I know we tried to line it up last time. It didn't work out. But we'll uh, get you guys on together and do some stuff. But uh, I appreciate you coming back hey, on. And,
0: uh, oh, yeah. Thanks, man. appreciate it.
2: Yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. It was great. You
1: know, no problem. As always. We'll, we'll do it again soon. Sounds good, man. Cheers. Peace.